This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Hi, this is Lauren in Melbourne, Australia. I'm outside listening to some very loud sulfur-crested cockatoos in the eucalyptus trees and also the politics podcast. Mm. This podcast was recorded at 1.35 p.m. on Thursday, February 22nd. Things may have changed by the time you hear it. Okay, here's the show. The cockatoos or us? I was stuck on eucalyptus trees. I wonder if it just smells delightful there. Unless the cockatoos are overpowered, overpowered the situation. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Susan Davis. I cover politics. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Greg Myrie, and I cover national security. And today we're going to talk about the U.S.-Israel relationship and its possible impact on the 2024 election. Greg, we should note you're joining us from Tel Aviv. You've been reporting from Israel for several weeks now. So let's just start here. What is happening on the ground there? Well, there is an effort to work out a ceasefire. It's been stalled, uh, but it's still going in terms of the effort. Uh, U.S. envoys are, uh, are here in in Israel, there's been a lot of back and forth with Cairo. Um, Israel and Hamas don't talk to each other directly. So this makes these negotiations very, very cumbersome. Uh, but there is some, some hope that something could be worked out in the coming days. Now, in Gaza, the fighting is still going on. It's focused very much in the south of the territory, uh, around the southern city of Han Yunus. And then Israel is threatening a major offensive towards Rafah. That is uh, the city on the very absolute southern border of Gaza. It's really the last Hamas stronghold. Um, Israel says it's not going to leave Hamas with any military power, uh, but there's also a million-plus Palestinians, displaced Palestinians in a tent city there. So that's where the real focus in terms of the war is right now. I'm curious what popular support is like right now for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who leading up to the October 7th attack had been a bit of a divisive political figure in the country. And I wonder if support for him has either grown or decreased since then. Yeah, the Israelis do a lot of polling here. And every Friday or so, stuff comes out in the paper. And Netanyahu and his Likud party um, are not doing well. The polls show that if an election were held today, um, they would probably be voted out of power and their coalition would would collapse. However, the Israelis have made a decision after the Hamas attack on October 7th that they were going to fight the war in a united front and then deal with the political issues after the war was over. That's pretty much held. We're starting to see that fray maybe a little bit. There have been protests against the Netanyahu government recently uh, saying that it's it's time for him to, to bring this war to an end, uh, to a successful conclusion, to negotiate the release of hostages. So Israelis are getting a little bit antsy uh, about this front. The war has been going on uh, more than four months uh, at this point. But for the moment, Netanyahu appears uh, firmly in power. But the the expectation is there's going to be a lot of political upheaval when the war does end. Tim Netanyahu, who is one of those foreign leaders that I think has a pretty uh, well-established name ID here in the U.S. He's been prime minister for the better part of the past 15 years. He's worked with three presidents dating back to Barack Obama. But this is exactly the kind of leader that Joe Biden, when he was running, said, I have these relationships all over the world. 
what is his relationship like with Netanyahu? They've obviously known each other a very long time. And and is there a sense of um, probably how tense it is right now, considering everything that's happened? There is certainly a familiarity. They do go way back, way, way, way back. Um, And, you know, I saw President Biden when he met with Netanyahu in New York at the U.N. General Assembly on the sidelines. And they had a frank conversation at that time about uh, what Netanyahu was trying to do uh, with his new, more conservative uh, majority uh, to to try to... uh, change the judicial process in the country. And and the the Biden administration strongly opposed, and many of the Israeli people strongly opposed what Netanyahu was trying to do, uh, trying to weaken the independence of the judiciary. Fast forward, October 7th happens. I traveled with the president to Israel. He gets off the plane in Tel Aviv at the airport and literally hugs Netanyahu. Um, that was a really emotional moment. It was right after the attack. Um, And it was also a metaphor that President Biden was hugging Israel close. Even then, he later told us that behind closed doors, he had tough talk for Netanyahu about uh, trying to avoid civilian casualties at the time, even trying to open up the Rafah gate to try to get uh, supplies into the Palestinian people. Um, So President Biden's priorities and Prime Minister Netanyahu's priorities have never been fully aligned this entire time. But uh, the Biden administration has made the calculation, namely President Biden has made the calculation that publicly standing with Israel is a priority. And then privately, they they can try to harangue and urge and do all those things. But Netanyahu does what Netanyahu does. Netanyahu's public rhetoric, you know, certainly seems aimed to his right flank. So then let me ask you both about sort of the politics around ceasefire. Greg, earlier this week, the U.S. once again blocked a U.N. resolution vote calling for an immediate ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. President Biden has been under a lot of political pressure to support a ceasefire from the left of the Democratic Party. How exactly is the U.S. positioning here, especially as you noted that Israel and Hamas are not talking to each other directly? So how is the U.S. trying to facilitate that or not? Well, the U.S. does have its own plan, even though it vetoed the the one that came up uh, this week at the United Nations. The U.S. is still supportive of Israel in its attempt really to eliminate Hamas as a military force in Gaza. Biden continues to give the Israelis some room to operate, but they would certainly like to see this happen as quickly as possible. And they would like to see a ceasefire. They would like to see the hostages exchanged and then and then move on. And Biden's longer term goal is a two-state solution, a Palestinian state, getting back to negotiations. And Netanyahu, through his long career, and he's been prime minister 13 of the past 15 years, has never entered serious negotiations with the Palestinians, and he's been even more adamant in the, in the past several months since the Hamas attack. So there's the short-term issue in trying to wrap up a war, wrap up the fight and get to a ceasefire, and then the longer-term goal where there really is a sharp division in terms of what the U.S. would like to see in terms of negotiations and Netanyahu's real opposition to that approach. As Greg mentioned, there have been a flurry of visits by Biden administration officials uh, to the region to try to break loose some sort of an agreement to pause the fighting, an extended pause that would then potentially lead to a ceasefire. And there's a real sense of urgency right now coming from uh, 
the White House and U.S. officials. Uh, Brett McGurk is in Israel right now. He's like a top envoy. Um, he had been in Cairo before. There, There is a real sense of urgency that they want to get this done. Um, but I'll say it's been several weeks that they have felt like, well, maybe it's right around the corner. Maybe we're closer. Maybe we're closer. Greg, to me, it's a, it's an interesting position where the U.S. is because they obviously have an interest in a ceasefire and a, and a peaceful ending to this conflict. But the U.S. is also a critical backer of Israel in its fight against Hamas. Israel aid to the tune of about $14 billion is being held up in Congress right now as part of a broader international aid package. I'm curious how critical that U.S. support is to the prospects of Israeli military success, especially as we've talked a lot about how critical it is in terms of success in Ukraine having U.S. support. Right. So it's a little bit different than Ukraine, which really is suffering from shortages. Israel has such overwhelming firepower in, the, in this battle with Hamas. Um, th- they can essentially do what they want and, and, and have plenty of, of, of resources to do that. However, in the sort of long term, uh, this really is critical for, for Israel. It is still very much a U.S. built military. All these planes that are that are dropping bombs on Gaza are U.S. planes, F-15s, F-16s, F-35s. This is U.S. artillery that's being used. So the Israelis depend very, very heavily on on U.S. equipment and this this largesse of almost four billion dollars a year, plus an additional fourteen billion that's under discussion right now. And war is a very voracious beast. Um, you need to be resupplied. And for example, uh, Israel needs a resupply of its Iron Dome missile defense system to, to shoot down all these rockets that Hamas has been shooting out of Gaza. So this fourteen billion would uh, go a long way in terms of resupplying, re-upping uh, Israeli ammunition and and other capacities uh, needed to fight a big war like this. Tim, it's not as focused as much in the stalled international aid package, but it's worth noting that there is about $10 billion in there for humanitarian aid, specifically to help people like the civilians in Gaza and the West Bank. And it does sort of speak to the fact that the U.S. sort of has a hand in all sides of this conflict, right? They're supporting the military, they're supporting humanitarian aid, they're trying to help negotiate a deal, but no actual power to execute any of those things. It's a tough position to be in. It is a tough position to be in. You know, this is Israel's war. This is not America's war, even though, as Greg says, uh, a lot of the equipment uh, has a U.S. stamp on it. Um, This is Israel's war being run by Israel. And it is absolutely important to the Biden administration that this humanitarian aid get in there. They are deeply frustrated. You know, we ask about this all the time in the White House press briefing. They get asked about it by reporters about the civilian death toll. And and the White House says one death is too many, but now the number is more like 27,000, 28,000. And it is it is overwhelming. It is it is difficult for them to continue making the argument that that Israel has done everything that it could to avoid these deaths. Um, and, and they frankly aren't making that argument anymore. The, this is something that uh, the White House says needs to stop. Um, and obviously for humanitarian reasons and not simply because it's also a really big political problem for the president. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll talk more about this when we get back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. 
Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. And we're back. I'd like to put something to both of you and get your input on it. But based off of what you're telling me, it sounds like there is competing political interests here. It seems like it is in the political interest of Prime Minister Netanyahu for the war with Hamas to carry on for some time because it pushes off the question about his own political fate. But at the same time, it is in the interest of President Joe Biden to have some sort of satisfying conclusion or answer to this because part of what he's campaigning on is that he is someone who can bring stability to an otherwise chaotic world. Greg, does that seem fair to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Sue. Um, remember, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has always portrayed himself as Mr. Security, the man who could protect Israel. And then the Hamas attack on October 7th happened on his watch. So this shocked everybody in Israel, and it completely undercut Netanyahu's claim that he was the one man who could protect Israel and keep the country safe. So he really needs a very successful outcome of this war, not a muddy, muddled compromise. So often we see these Israel-Hamas conflicts. They go on for a couple weeks. They end. We've been seeing this for years and years. Nothing really gets resolved one way or the other. So he really needs a clear-cut victory here if he has any hope of political survival. Again, the, 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 there's a broad feeling here that he, he won't survive after this war is over politically. Um, he, he and his government and his coalition might collapse and Israel will, will move in a different direction. So he really wants a success outcome, and that probably means a longer war, uh, which is exactly the opposite of what uh, President Biden would like to see. Clear-cut political victories aren't something the region is known for. Yeah, President Biden needs this to be over with, at least uh, to be no longer front of mind. Uh, He needs the civilian deaths in Gaza to stop um, because it is a real problem for him particularly on the left. At the same time, there are other elements of the electorate who have rewarded him for supporting Israel, not necessarily for supporting Netanyahu, but for supporting the the state of Israel, Israel, the people of Israel. And I think that's a distinction that you might start to see the White House make more frequently, which is sort of drawing that distinction between like the current government versus the existence of the state of Israel. I think that is a really interesting political needle he has to thread, though, because he can't ignore the left, especially in places like Michigan. We talked earlier on the podcast this week about places like the Arab American community, the Muslim community, in critical states like Michigan. He sent campaign emissaries there to try to make sure that they could uh, soothe hurt feelings within the party. 
To your point about the general election, I was also struck by a Quinnipiac poll that came out late last month that uh, polled voters in Pennsylvania about their attitudes towards Israel. And it showed that uh, for one of their senators, John Fetterman, he's a Democrat, aligned with the progressive wing of the party, but has taken a very vocal stance in favor of Israel against his own party in many ways. And it showed that voters there had a more favorable view of him because of taking a strong position on Israel. And that surprised me, right, because it's kind of counter to what you're hearing right now in the Democratic Party. And it's a reminder that a general election electorate in places like Pennsylvania might be more favorable to a president who stands by the old uh, strong allied relationship with Israel. Right. And it might be more comfortable for the sort of suburban, uncomfortable Republicans who aren't comfortable with Trump, but may be willing to think about voting for a Biden, that that sort of policy position might be comforting to those sorts of voters. Yeah. Elections that are so close, which is what uh, they are now in these key swing states, come down to 10,000 votes here, 20,000 votes there. Uh, are people excited? Are people sitting on the couch, as we're hearing a lot about in the last few weeks? Um, and and so Every policy move you make when you're an incumbent has the risk of upsetting someone or pleasing someone else. And it's a balance. Um, But I think that the view in Biden world is that the progressive left that is really, really upset about this is perhaps much louder than they are influential. Um, And as an example of that, this is not a great example. You look at New Hampshire, where there was a campaign. I saw signs. There was a push to get people to write in ceasefire instead of Joe Biden. And I got like 1,500 write-ins. Not nothing, but not not, nothing. Not something that ultimately shakes the fundamentals of a campaign. Right. Yeah. Greg, what is the view from Israel towards the U.S. and how the U.S. has engaged or not in this conflict? Oh, the Israelis are very appreciative and supportive of everything President Biden and his administration have done. Uh, There's really a a very broad awareness of that uh, among Israelis. Now, I think the concern is that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu um, has become a divisive figure in some ways and that this U.S. support might not be as solid as it has been because of some of the hardline position he's taken over the years and the way he's handling the war right now. Israel used to be the bipartisan issue in Congress. Anything Israel-related won overwhelming support. But Netanyahu is a divisive figure both here and to some extent in the United States um, has, has made that fray. And there's real irony there for Netanyahu, who grew up in Philadelphia, attended college at MIT, very Americanized, uh, very American English, uh, of who, and who feels he is an expert on U.S. politics. And because of the positions he's taken over the years and his willingness to go against U.S. Uh, presidents, Israel is in some ways a bit of a divisive issue now. All right. Well, that is it for us today. We'll be back in your feeds tomorrow with the Weekly Roundup. I'm Susan Davis. I cover politics. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Greg Myrie. I cover national security. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch.
Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.